Welcome to the official podcast for the Society of Urodynamics, Female Pelvic Medicine, and Urogenital Reconstruction. Here you will find podcasts highlighting clinically relevant topics, ongoing SUFU initiatives, SUFU member highlights, and much, much more. Hello, welcome to the SUFU Health Policy Podcast. This is Una Lee from Virginia Mason in Seattle, and I'm moderating a discussion of our esteemed Health Policy Committee. Welcome. I have Dr. Michael Canelli here from the Carolinas Medical Center, Professor of Urology in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hello. Hello. How are you, Una? Glad to be here. Great. I have Priya Padmanaman, Professor of Urology at Bowman Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan. Welcome. Lovely to see you all. And I have Ayman Mahdi, who is Interim Chief and Associate Professor of Urology at University of Cincinnati. Welcome. For having me. So we are here in a very unprecedented time, pretty much in the middle of the COVID crisis, and our SUFU members have experienced a dramatic impact of this crisis and this pandemic. And so one question I have for you, each of you, is what are some of the important issues to think about from a health policy perspective? Well, I would state that, you know, this is an unprecedented event that not only just FKMS is going to, but really the whole country. So beyond healthcare, it's just business in general. So we're dealing with something that we haven't even experienced before. So that's the first part. You then couple it with in our world of pelvic floor, the aging population that we have to deal with is the most at risk with the COVID syndrome. So that's obviously of a concern. Uh, And then the other areas that we're starting to see right now is that what we normally do as far as surgeons and proceduralists, we're not able to do that at all. You couple that with the uncertainty of possibly being deployed to help out our other colleagues. Uh, so really, it's created a lot of turmoil, a lot of concern, but and a lot of rapid changes. So we've been very pleased the Health Policy Committee has really expanded, not only to include uh, my colleagues here, but we also have two other colleagues that have rapidly joined early, Dr. Ben Brucker and Dr. Brooke Brown has joined also. So we're pleased to have them. Priya, what have your thoughts been? So I think... Um... As you say, it's a it's a tenuous, but in some ways sort of exciting time. You know, the whole platform of telemedicine has been sort of there. It's been present, but not fully utilized, um, but wanted to be utilized. So, you know, you have venture capital groups that have invested huge amounts for years in telemedicine because they felt there was a, a, once taken hold, it would it would have rapid um, acceptance and use. But we've been, but physicians have been limited, right? They've been limited by, you know, fear of reimbursement. It was cumbersome. There were licensing requirements. And so with COVID, all of that stuff has sort of been lifted. And so instead of just being telemedicine as requiring a telemedicine platform, we now have this sort of virtual care, which is expanded into all of the sort of the social, social media applications. So that's given us better use of something that would so benefit some of our older patients at a distance that we can't normally access. So I think that we are in a kind of a scary time at a personal level, um, sort of the risk it places upon us and our families, uh, both in the patients we see and we might see if we're deployed or redeployed. Um, But I think it's going to bring great improvement 
in our abilities to access the patients. So I'm excited about that. And our policy is going to change with it. Um, I'm not going to uh, repeat what was just said by Mike and Priya, uh, but I wanted to add a couple of things related specifically to our practices. As Mike mentioned, most of our patients are actually elderly people. And with those, uh, you would always be concerned about how much of communication would they be able to afford during telemedicine or video uh, conferences. I have even uh, had a large sector of my patients could not do the video visits that we kind of benefit from doing face-to-face, so instead I had to make uh, just a regular phone call. And that's probably not unexpected from elderly patients that they have some issues dealing with software and new technology. The other issue I would think relative to telemedicine was what we do is the fact that most of our evaluation is really clinically based. We're not treating cancer when imaging has a major role, neither we treat much stones when imaging has a lot to say about the decision. We rely mostly on clinical evaluation. So that, that created another difficulty dealing with uh, telehealth in particular. Um, I think we're fortunate that we and the CMS um, changed their rules and provided a lot of flexibility to um, kind of cope with the crisis. And that really relieved a lot of burden upon us as providers, uh, being able to use telemedicine without much of the restrictions that we used to have on CMS. Those are all excellent points um, brought up among the three of you. Thank you for that. Um, if we could follow up on some of those, um, what um, one of the things you brought up was that you know our practices, our you know pelvic floor practices, are clinically based. And so how much of this can we do by listening to their symptoms over a telemedicine visit and um, kind of doing what we can in, with those limitations and those barriers decreased? Well, I think with some of the restrictions that have been lifted by the government as far as allowing us to do telemedicine across state lines during this public health emergency time, we're really trying to explore. And there's many of us who have not been able to do that. There's various different states have requirements and consequently you're limited in that regard. But now that the gate has been open, it's really opened up the door for everyone to jump into this telemedicine. So we have some of our colleagues who are have really optimized that therapy. We have others that are just beginning. And when you're dealing with large institutions, they have to kind of choose a platform as opposed to the many different platforms that are out there. And so we have many people that our colleagues are looking to figure out what's going to be the best one. Um, in our institution, for example, we've been doing telemedicine, but really only to rural areas. And we have a platform, but we have 1,600 physicians in our group. And to have all of us join that platform was overwhelming. So we obviously wanted to broaden it out because it takes a lot of time and effort for certain platforms to get your front office, your schedulers, your nurses, everyone familiar with that personalized technology. How have the others been using telemedicine or how is it implemented in their practices? So, you know, I will say that I agree, as I mentioned before, you know, before this, you know, because of the limitations, only about 14%, I think, of physicians across all systems, across all specialties were even using it because they didn't know how to use it. Um, the difference for us has been we initially tried 
um, to use some of the telemedicine platforms, but it was it was cumbersome to set up. So then when Medicare passed the rules allowing us to use face, FaceTime, um, to use Skype, to use Zoom, to use these different things, we all started doing that. Um, Beaumont itself, that's in the private group, Beaumont itself is using a system called Haiku, which is, a tel- which is an actual telemedicine platform. And that's worked out really well. I mean, it took a little bit. It took a week and a half or so to set up, but now it's, it's pretty fluid. Um, and I find that some of the older patients, yes, it doesn't work initially, but what I'll do often is I'll call them. I'll then walk them through the steps of how to do it and kind of just, you know, kind of keep two phones. I have one phone that's, or I have the connection with either my phone or the computer. Then I keep a separate landline and kind of walk them through it through their uh, land phone. And then they, they manage to get it. And once they get it the first time on follow-up, they haven't had any issue. Um, so to me, I'm not, uh, I wasn't used to use telemedicine before um, this um, kind of situation that we are dealing with now. But when we started using it, um, we it was a work in progress for everybody. Uh, what we settled with doing now, and it seemed like working pretty well, a few days before the office visit, our staff called the patient, sent them the um, HEPA forms, the consent for treatment forms. Patients take care of those, send them back to us. And then the uh, day of the office visit, our staff called the patients well ahead of time, making sure the connection are proper. The patient is familiar with the kind of the telemedicine uh, visit process. And then they do whatever necessary from the nursing standpoint to try the patient and keep it, make them ready. And then they inform me, uh, obviously we're remotely communicating, uh, so the staff inform me that the patient is ready. I do use a HiQ app in my cell phone, it's pretty easy. So what I do, I have my, we use the Epic as a uh, EMR. Uh, so I have the Epic uh, chart open in front of me in the computer and my phone is actually the way to communicate with the patient. So I go to the HiQ app and there's a tab, very, very easy, it says the patient is ready to join. I hit that tab and connect me to the patient face-to-face. Um, uh, so that's been, Recent has been working pretty good and efficiently with no issues. The one thing I would say, Luna, is that I think this access of telemedicine has, is going to be transformational for you know, medicine. Um, the government has, as I stated, opened the gates to allow us during this time to use it. Whether they will get enough pressure from society to state they want it and allow then each state to have that access I'm actually hoping that it does occur. I think we're finding, as with anything else, as we start to get accustomed to something, become adaptable. You know, remember the days of uh, notes that were just written, moving to an electronic health record. There's a lot of difficulty learning it, but now we're used to it. This is just another iteration of that area. Because if I look at the patients who really are the most vulnerable that travel a lot for healthcare in our vast country, this really, we have the ability to reach out to them. And we are educators at heart. And so we can educate people on pelvic floor issues, urinary incontinence, and that can be the first stage part to them getting in to then allowing us to use some of the skills we have from a procedural base to help them. And I'm hoping to see, um, in the near future, I'm hoping to see some data scientific data evidence on what the outcome of what we're doing now in terms of patient satisfaction, clinical outcome, physician satisfaction, billing, all these. I would hope that we see some good articles out there published in this matter. So it help us 
or guide us further in the near future. Yeah, I would I would agree. I think it's a certainly a tipping point in healthcare, and um, I know we can only hypothesize what's to come, but I do think that telemedicine is hopefully here to stay, and um, it is. It's a great resource for those. And, you know, sort of savings of cost and time and productivity for those who travel a lot to get healthcare. I, I know in my state, I have patients who travel for hours um, to get their subspecialties care or their primary care. And um, I think it's going to be, uh, you know, certainly a big change for healthcare. Well, that's been most frustrating. You, you look when you see a patient and you realize how far they travel an hour and a half, two hours, you're in your office. You feel obligated that, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry you've traveled this much. You have to go home. Let me make, spend more time with you. And that's so much easier, the telemedicine aspect of things, if it can be done in that setting. Right. And right now, it makes sense because they're staying at home. They're safe. We're reaching to them through the screen. Um, Priya, we were talking about sort of chronic disease and overactive bladder as a chronic disease. Um, what are your thoughts on that in telemedicine? Well, it's interesting. You know, earlier it used to be that the patient and the physician had to have a prior relationship in order to do a telemedicine visit. But I think what we're all learning is with OAB, that initial visit doesn't have to be in person. You know, the, in the, the details of their symptomatology, the history, the chronology, that is all very well done on any in-depth interview that can be done in telemedicine. And then you really can get through all the different levels of the OAB treatment, you know, the primary, secondary, until you get to the tertiary level, where at that point, yes, you might want to bring them in and do an exam. And, and if you think your dynamics are needed, that would be a good timing to do that. You can do a majority of our OAB management without, without having seen them, without being seen and seeing them in person. Um, so I think it's of great value in voiding dysfunction, especially OAB. And I would add on to that, that I think, Remember that we've used navigators throughout the OEB, and this is a perfect way to actually have a navigation where you can have sort of quick check-ins instead of coming back in four to six weeks after some management, really checking in in a convenient uh, way for the patient. And I think that's going to probably improve their satisfaction and hopefully their outcome. Absolutely. So we've talked about some of the positives that we've experienced for our patients um, using telemedicine, what are some of the barriers or limitations or challenges that you've seen? I know we've had a limited sort of experience thus far, but even in the last few weeks. So, so when we come to the point of needing surgery, that's obvious. You know, we have obviously we cannot do what we, as Mike mentioned earlier, we're not able to do what we supposed to do. And most of our patients are actually elective ones. Um, they're not life-threatening. They're quality of life issues, which is as important but from the timing standpoint, they are considered elective. So weighing the risks and benefits, exposing the patient to come to the hospital at this time, we kind of hold on those cases for when the time goes back and we come back to our routine. So that's really the major barrier in my case. Um, and I'm sure this is similar to m most of our community members, um, when and how we're going to catch up with our surgical cases. Uh, which we have some few ideas on board that we're going to discuss. I would agree with those. And some of the obvious barriers we've seen is just technology barriers, educational barriers, confusion on part of our patient. Remember, a large part of our patient population is, you know, in the older age range. And so some of it is generational. The younger patients that we have are very adaptable to electronics and 
smart platforms and et cetera. They love that. And in fact, that's their preferred method. Uh, but our older population, it's confusing to them. We have to walk them through the steps. Now, I think they'll appreciate it. I've had several of them that said, no, I'll just wait. I want to see you in person because I want that personal touch, that kind of personal aspect. And I think that that's still the benefit of inpatient, you know, in-room visits is that's where you really can allow your patient relationship, you know, to develop. Now, one of the issues also I've really uh, trying to uh, figure out is residence education uh, when it comes to the office uh, clinical rotation in the office or in an OR. Obviously, we're not having that exposure with the residents. Uh, our educational activities now are limited to virtual ones. Um, so there is no really on-site training at this point, which is a major um, problem that we're facing. So then I guess the question would be, just like we have with the robot, right? We added another console. Would there be potential in the future for perhaps an additional screen for the learner? You know, especially all of us are working with residents and the patients know it's a teaching institute. Um, I think many of them may even feel um, better about it if they know that it is um, more consistent with what they would experience in real life in our clinic. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I know I have colleagues at UCSF that have a virtual MA doing the rooming, a virtual resident doing part of the patient visit, even a virtual scribe, and then their portion. And so I think as we evolve, these efficiencies can be um, incorporated. And I think, you know, that's certainly, um, you know, things to consider. I think as the curve maybe flattens and as things shift, um, things will evolve. So, for example, here on the West Coast, um, you know, we may be past, past our first peak and so residents are starting to get back involved. We have access to PPE and, um, you know, so it, it does, it does, it's, as we said, rapidly changing and shifting. But getting back to your question, I think there's many areas within our field that can do well with this. We talked about overactive bladder, certainly microscopic hematuria, looking at um, urinary tract infections looking at pelvic prolapse and patients actually nowadays have a can use some questionnaire bases to identify if it's symptomatic or not. So I think this is going to open up the door to us to explore ways to really improve the educational value to get the patients that need to come to see our skill sets as opposed to kind of starting out as a non-educated patient when they first come in the door. So I think it will really help us in the future. But we've got to get our work processes in place. We've got to get technology with us and, and not only our staff on board. Once again, is society ready for this? And will they be ready to understand the multiple platforms that are out there? Because some of them said, Oh, I'm connecting on the phone and this doctor and I'm connecting to the internet on this other doctor and I have to download this app for these doctors. So. We'll, we'll see. And that'll sort itself out in time. Mm -hmm. I do like that idea about the um, symptom-based and bother-based management, because that's what, what it's about. And I think most all our diagnoses can be managed that way, knowing that at some point we'll get an exam in and at some point we'll get diagnostics in and, and things like that. But um, uh, Priya? No, I was saying that, you know, when we've had other in, in endeavors or, in, you know, um, initiatives in medicine, there has been, had to be a pilot. There's been a lot of thought and a lot of, you know, very um, 
you know, white haired individuals putting all their heads together, we were forced into a situation where we're almost doing a very, very large pilot study across the country. Um, and I feel like we've almost skipped a huge step in, in the sort of workaround. And so in the process, what we will come out with will be very functional guidelines, more so than we would have if this had never happened. So I feel like in that sense, our timeline has been cut short. Um, and we'll get to that point, like Mike was saying, of using the platforms. And also it, inherent in all this is that the cost is going to go down because there's going to be more platforms and more competition between platforms. So therefore, it'll be cheaper and more accessible. And will the cost of healthcare go down as we utilize more telemedicine? Is this or maybe not the cost, but the big, the big cost? You know, I don't know. That's interesting. I think one of the other aspects is it allow us to kind of triage as we've already done within urology, we have this triage of surgical procedures. Um, but I think we will also triage what is available for telemedicine, which really needs to be worked in in a quick fashion. So that's why I say, I think this is a social experiment, which we're going to all come out of it different, but we hopefully will grow. You know, urology is a very innovative field. That's what we do. We constantly change, we adapt. We are very resilient. And I think we're going to come through this with some new tools and some new innovation, which which I'm excited for. You know, you've got to look to the positive. So I would I just add one line, and I think that this is what they call democratizing specialty care. You know, we have these abstracts coming out every year at the AUA about our services that are not utilized, right? We talked about how we have tertiary level options for OAB but only certain people, just a very rare number, are doing them, which was kind of shocking. I, I, it came out from you guys, didn't it? From Virginia Mason? Mm-hmm, one of ours, yep. Right. And so I, I do think that this could actually bring us closer to, the, to, to people utilizing those services. And I, I won't be surprised if we even have uh, going to have clinical guidelines just adjusted for the telemedicine part, you know, different from the clinical guidelines that we have now, you know, implemented for face-to-face visits. Uh, I think that will be something maybe coming up in the horizon. This is great. Very thought-provoking. And um, yeah, I guess there's sort of the silver lining in all this um, with the coronavirus, that there is something good coming out of it in that it's the rapid implementation of telemedicine, the creativity, the resilience um, out of, you know, on both sides. What, what surprised you? The things that surprised me, which I think are in a good way, is that we actually can see mobilization of the healthcare community. Uh, And when I say the healthcare community, it's really everyone that's involved. So it's not just the doctors, it's really the whole spectrum. And the bonding that's been going on and the ability to mobilize quickly and then also share. Uh, One of the key things that I've seen that's happened over the last month is our urology community has shared in education and teaching and training for residents and fellows. You know, everyone has kind of opened up their grand rounds. They've opened up their sharing. Societies are coming together with advocacy to really promote what we do. Um, and I think that's important. And I think that's great. So it's, it's just another avenue that really will help our field. Um, what surprised me a couple of things. One is I was concerned about my patient dissatisfaction uh, not seeing me in person. Uh, but really, they were very, very grateful. Uh, every time I talk to patients, they're very, very um, appreciative 
of me reaching out and talking to them. It, uh, that I was surprised with that. I thought the opposite would be the case. And I also um, was surprised that we all kind of faced this crisis as a, as a family between different levels at the level of providers. And as Mike mentioned, the society levels, we just uh, put every personal interest aside and we face this as, as, as a family, which is kind of interesting. I guess um, one of the things we mentioned is a limitation. I have been surprised at how people have overcome that limitation. That's the technology aspect. And that is that we always assume, which is not unreasonable, that people over the age of 80 or 70 or whatever number you want to give are going to be challenged by the, by the technology issues. And the reality is most of those people have grandchildren. And if they have grandchildren, they're having to communicate with those grandchildren from afar, which means they've learned how to use these visual, these virtual methods, right, of social, of, uh, you know, whatever it is, FaceTime, Zoom. And so that means that they're becoming much more savvy and able by need, um, more at the personal level. So that can then be adapted at a um, health uh, health level. So I've been surprised at how well they've adapted. One of the things I would just also state is, Remember that everyone's been at stay-at-home orders, and our patient population has not really had the ability to talk to people in medicine. They have all these relationships with their personal physicians, and the ability to reach out to them and provide just some assurance, you know, answer their questions, it really provides relief for them. And the ability for us to do that with either telehealth, I think, has been a great advantage. Um, you know, they trust the healthcare community and they want to hear from us. And so if they can't come to the office, the ability to get the word out to them is, is reassuring. I like that. I think that, you know, just like we can maintain personal relationships virtually, we can maintain the doctor-patient relationship virtually um, at this time and in the future. Um, well, I have very much enjoyed... Uh, speaking with all of you, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with the Sufu community and the community at large. Um, we just wish everyone safety and health and um, that that we get through this together. And um, again, hope everyone stays safe and continues to do well. Thanks for listening to today's episode on the Sufu podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast streaming app. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter with our handle at SuFuOrg, where we'll provide real-time updates of our next podcast episode launch. And be sure to check us out on our website, www.sufuorg.com.